Hello book lovers and welcome to the first part of two summer read specials here on the Vintage Podcast. If you're looking for something to read in the sun or perhaps not if you're in the British Isles that will both entertain and challenge you, we've got the book that hits the spot. I'm Alex Clark, and during the course of our two-part summer special, we'll be helping you to select that all-important holiday read. In this episode, we talk to Elif Batuman about her novel, The Idiot, a beautiful and sharply observed coming-of-age story about the absurdities of academia and adolescence. And to Laurent Binet, best-selling author of Ash, 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 about his new book, the literary conspiracy thriller, The Seventh Function of Language. Before that, though, I'm delighted to introduce you to a very special author, Brian Van Riet, who came to talk to me about his intriguing new book, Spoils. Brian Van Riet was born in Houston. Following the September the 11th attacks, he dropped out of the University of Virginia and he enlisted in the US Army. In Iraq, he achieved the rank of sergeant and was awarded a Bronze Star for Valor. His first novel follows the crossing paths of 19-year-old Cassandra on her first deployment with the US Army and Abu al-Hul, a jihadist. I sat down to chat with him earlier in the year to talk about demonising the enemy, writing the other, and what being patriotic really is. Brian, I'm so delighted that, that you're here. Thank you so much for coming to talk to us. I know that you, um, well, before we were chatting, you said, this is a dream come true. And then you also said, you've just done such a long interview, your voice might have gone a little bit. I don't think it has, but... Let's it's recovered. <laughs> it recovered over lunch, but we'll see what happens. <laughs> so the dream come true is publishing this novel, publishing spoils. Now, I know that people often immerse themselves in their subject matter, but this is quite on a quite different scale. Though, of course, the experience became came before the subject matter. Just explain to us what spoils is about. Well, this is a it's a literary war novel. It's set during the early days of the Iraq War in 2003. And, you know, I, I wouldn't have written this book if it weren't for the fact that I participated in that war about a year later than the book is set. Uh, I, I've always liked writing and reading and wanted to be a writer since I was a teenager, but I don't think I would have written this book if I, if I hadn't also been a soldier at one point in my life. I mean, you dropped out of college, basically, to enlist, didn't you? Yes, and I, was, I wasn't doing so well at college, so I kind of was – I would have been asked to leave um, anyway. And so I was looking for something else to do. Um, <clears throat> I was one of those kids who – I did well in high school, but, you know, I, I had my adolescent rebellion a few years later than some kids have it. So I went off to college and had a bit too much fun, wasn't that interested in going to class. And, you know, I never thought about joining the Army in peacetime, but I was reckless enough to, to want to do it when a war broke out. Um, you know, I think I was looking for a sense of adventure and to be part of, of something momentous. I, I felt like, you know, real life was happening somewhere outside campus, off campus. Uh, of course, when I got in the Army, it didn't take long before I was very ready to get back in school. And sure. that's what I did after I got out of the Army. I kind of stayed in school for as long as I could. Uh, but, yeah, it's uh, – that was the – you know, I was, I was a person who you – make, you make a decision 
it's somewhat impulsive and then it has long-lasting consequences uh that decision to enlist it, it wasn't very well thought out in my case i wasn't one of these people who always knew that i would have a career in the military it was something as you say impulsive but beyond that idea of a sense of personal adventure and also you know coinciding with this point in your life where you knew you needed to find something else and we're talking about america at a particularly critical time in its history. It's the beginning of the 21st century. It's the aftermath of 9-11. And things are very, very different. Yeah, it's, it's almost hard to go back mentally in time to that era just because so much has happened in the last 15 or 16 years that it's it, it feels almost more distant than it should. Um, yeah, you know, the, the political aspects weren't that important to me at the time. I didn't join because I wanted to enforce George W. Bush's foreign policy. I didn't vote for the guy. I didn't vote for him in 2004 on absentee ballot from Baghdad. You know, I voted for Kerry. But so it wasn't a political decision for me at all. Was it patriotic, though? Was there a more nebulous idea of wanting to serve America than than a specific political uh, regime? I think that was part of it. I mean, yeah, patriotism was part of it. Uh, there's a little bit of a military history in my family. My grandparents on my dad's side, they were both in the Marine Corps, my grandmother and grandfather. That's how they met. So there was a bit of that. Um, but, you know, when I, what I keep coming back to when I think about why I did this was that I did it for some of the same reasons why people, you know, ride motorcycles too fast without a helmet, why they smoke cigarettes why they do any number of potentially self-destructive things and why they might read a war novel. It's because you want to get closer to the darker aspects of human nature. You want to see it for yourself. It's, it's kind of curiosity. And some people feel that stronger than others. And I felt it strong enough when I was 20 years old that I was willing to go to war to, mm. out, of, out of a kind of curiosity, I think. But, yeah, there it's more complex than that. Like you're saying, there was patriotism. I... I don't really think of myself as a nationalist, but I do consider myself a patriot. Like, I want my country to live up to its ideals. I think that's what patriotism is. It's mm. different than nationalism. So, yeah, I think that was part of it, too. But as you say, once you were there, once you were embedded in this highly volatile, highly complex, um, extremely traumatic situation, obviously your views changed. I'm wondering... At what point you started to think of yourself as an observer as well as a participant? Oh, you know, I I guess always. I mean, I, I'm always observing. That's part of who I am. <clears throat> and I was certainly participating as well. You, I mean, I didn't have the luxury of, of, of just being an observer. Sure. Because I was a you soldier. A soldier. I, I had that yeah. job to do and I wasn't, you know, I was relatively low ranking. I was a a specialist when I arrived in Iraq and I was promoted to sergeant, but that that's pretty low ranking. So I just, you had to do your job. I had a few soldiers under me that I was responsible for. And so I was observing and, and taking in what was happening, but I was also a participant. Uh, and, you know, I wasn't thinking at the time that, wow, I'm going to write a book about this. I, I didn't really do much. I didn't do any fiction writing in Iraq. I wrote a lot of letters and emails home, and I'd always liked writing and kind of wanted to be a writer. But while I was there, that, that job and that experience were so consuming that 
you know, the time to making notes for a book or anything like that. That was wasn't something course, I was doing. Of course, no, you weren't uh, in a creative writing no, class. No, definitely not. There. But it it does strike me that at you know there was something of the sensibility, whether it had come out as a novel, a piece of nonfiction. Um, any other art form that was going on. I mean, you've also uh, spoken very deliberately about why it is a novel, why it's not a memoir, why it's not a piece of nonfiction. Why right. was that important to you? Um, for one, because I can tell a story that's more interesting and vital than my story would be alone. I mean, I have one experience of the war. It's particular to me, but it's, you know, it, it may not be that essential. I think that these characters in this book they're more essential to what is new and different and troubling to me about this war. Uh, and I think fiction allows you that freedom to to create a story that gets it a sense of truth with a, maybe a capital T that you can't always get out in memoir, or at least I find it difficult to get out. Because I'm very in a memoir, you're very constrained by the, the literal truth, what actually happened. And you run into silly problems like, how could I even remember... You'd have to invent conversations because I don't have notes or tapes of, of what happened. So you could, there's you can write a memoir, but it would it would still it wouldn't be the actual truth. It would be my interpretation of reality. And fiction is that as well. But it's I feel less constrained writing fiction, and I don't have to worry about things like, you know, <clears throat> if I had to write about a person who's who's real and living and I knew painting them in, a, in an unflattering light. You know, maybe they deserve that. Maybe they wouldn't deserve that. Um, I would worry about that too much, I think, writing a memoir. Some people can do it. I'm not sure I can do a very good job at it. One thing, though, that fiction does present you with, the challenge it immediately presents you with, is that in Spoils there is a character who, roughly speaking, is has a parallel identity to yours. He is a specialist. He is a soldier. Uh, you then have another character, a jihadi, and you have another character, a female soldier. Mm -hmm. So what you have to do then is to imagine your way into those characters. So that is a whole additional layer of creativity and of responsibility as well. Yeah, the funny thing about it, like the character who's most like me on the surface is in some ways the least like me inside, the least like me spiritually or how my actual personality your soldier, is. Your U.S. Yeah, soldier. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, when, you know, I think to convincingly write about people who are not like you on the outside or whose experiences are not like you, you have to do some research. You have to gain the knowledge and to understand the touchstones and the details that you can use to make the story convincing. But as far as people, like, I, I tend to believe that people are people and any two of them are, are more alike than they are different, even if they come from radically different backgrounds, religions, cultures, even epochs. You know, I mean, you read ancient literature and you can see the same motivating factors that people that are still driving people today. I mean, so in that way, I don't think people are that much different from each other. And I don't think they've changed that much over time. So when you're writing about like a jihadist, yeah, you have to do your due diligence to understand what that experience might be like and to, to get those details that you can use to convince the reader. But I think you can mine your own personality and psychology to to create that kind of a character because, again, like, uh, they're not 
people are people and we're all humans. And, you know, in a, in a weird way, like I, I felt like I understood something about that character because I was a young 20 year old guy who enlisted to fight in a foreign war. So I, I felt, you know, like I kind of got why young men would do something like that. Uh, the character Cassandra, the young woman in the army, she felt more daunting and exotic for me to try to write because I was in this unit where there were no women and I didn't know many women in the military. I've, I've met many more since getting out. So, uh, you know, it was more daunting for me to try to start to write her. But of course, once I started it and once I learned more, I realized like, you know, women enlist for some of the same reasons men do, which are varied. And I think where men sometimes get in trouble with writing women is they try too hard to write a woman as if it's like some other species of human instead of just <laughs> yes. writing a person yeah. who is a woman. Uh, so that's, you know, I tried to, to write a person. In terms of actually both those characters, I mean, one of the things that strikes me as you're saying this is that uh, you know, one of the sort of besetting anxieties of the age is the fact that we are sort of making people totally other to us. You know, we're basically saying oh, yeah. we can't understand them. You know, right. the people that, who we perceive to be, who a country, a state, a religious group, a social group, a political group, see as other to them, become alien rather than simply different and it seems to me that one of the things you're trying to do is is yeah no i'm definitely trying to inject some humanity back in to the discussion and you know we've the u.s government the media they've the demonization of the enemy has been spectacular over the, the past 16 years on both sides and there's some justification for that because there's some murderous terrible things that have happened but on the same hand, it, like if we can't even acknowledge that the basic humanity of the other side and the fact that you know not not everyone opposed to us is some sort of to use some phrases that have been tossed off by different presidents like thugs, dead enders, a, a cult of death, all these things. It's it's a failure of imagination and a failure of you know Sun Tzu, the famous. Uh, Chinese writer about war, he, he said that if you understand yourself but not the enemy, you'll lose half the battles and vice versa. And you can only be effective as a military force if you can understand yourself and the enemy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I didn't write this book so that we could get better at, at war, but there's a point to that where you you have to try to understand. Um, and, I, and funnily enough, like many of the thoughtful soldiers that I have known have done that. They've thought a lot about this, and we used to talk about it even in Baghdad, like, you know, wondering about who are we fighting and what are they like? Because almost by definition, the enemy has to be imagined. You don't get to sit at a table like this and talk about it. You might not even see that person. You probably won't. It'll just be a, a glimpse or, or something like that. So, yeah, we, we talked about it back then. And so this character is, is a continuation of that thought process of asking who are we fighting and what motivates them? Now, don't take this the wrong way. Okay. But the experience that you're describing and the book, there has been quite a long time. True. And I'm wondering what was going on then, whether you just needed to let that experience, that knowledge settle for a long time. How did the writing of the book happen? I started writing fiction about the war in, I guess, late 2006, early 2007. 
And the, the first things I wrote were, were much closer, were much more autobiographical type of fiction. So it was you know, sort of thinly veiled autobiography, you might say. But and these were shorter pieces. Yeah, they're short stories. stories yeah. yeah. The first thing I wrote, though, that was not very autobiographical, was from the perspective of a would-be suicide bomber in Iraq, and I think that because that perspective, again, it's just I write about things that trouble me or perplex me or that I don't understand, and so that perspective is is both perplexing and troubling, and it is so vital to, to understanding what happened and what is happening uh and it's not a voice that we ever hear from except in you know propaganda or through the lens of news reports or something like that and so yeah that was one of the first things i wrote that was not from a perspective that was mine um so and that was in 2008 so it's been a yeah it's been a long process of getting better at writing and refining ideas and things like that. Uh, it takes a long time to write a book. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just want to, to, to end by asking you, war, not a lot of war literature, classic war literature, has really had an impact. It stays with us still, thinking of things like works by Norman Mailer or uh, All Quiet on the Western Front, you know, those real kind of classics. Tim O'Brien mm. would be another person. Um, I'm not asking you to make any huge claims for your own work, but is that sort of what motivates you, that idea that you're going to write a piece of creativity meets experience, meets testimony, that will actually make an impact on the people who read it? Well, yes, in the sense that, you know, some of the first... I always like to read, but when I was when I was younger, like maybe preteen, I would read fantasy or, or horror books. And some of the first literary novels that really moved me profoundly were war books. And I think it's because of what you're talking about, where it's, it's creativity meets real life in a very vital way. So that probably has something to do with why I went to war and why I chose to write about the subject. On the other hand, it's not really a choice. You know, it's, it's, I'm compe- I was compelled to write this book. If, I, if it had been a choice... I don't. I couldn't have finished it because I would have given up after, you know, the umpteenth rejection or the, the second failed sure. draft or whatever. So yeah. it was, it was a compulsion to tell the story. Uh, so yeah, there, there, there's choice in it, but there's also like the things that, that move you to write. I'm not sure how much choice we have over that. I guess well, if you're writing a certain kind of book, maybe you do, but. But not know. this one. Not yeah. This one was something that I had to do. We're glad you did. Well, thank you. Thank you. It's an amazing book. Thank you very much, Brian, for for coming to talk to us. Oh, thank you. It was my pleasure. New Yorker journalist Elif Batuman used her first book, The Possessed, to play with the idea of living through books. Her new book, The Idiot, is a fictionalised account of her own struggle to do exactly that and live through books while also experiencing life and rising to the challenges of adulthood. It's a rich, long and engaging chronicle of college life. I was lucky enough to get to speak to her about the roots of the book, its links to Dostoevsky and what might be next. I'm delighted to be joined now by Elif Batuman, um, who's going to be talking about her novel, The Idiot. Now, 
And if, am I right to think somebody's already had that title? <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, this is the second book that I'm writing with a Dostoevsky title because my first book, which was nonfiction, was called The Possessed Adventures with Russian Books and the People Who Read Them. And I, I've only written two books and they both have Dostoevsky titles. And actually, up until the publicity cycle for this book, I, I went through my whole life thinking that I was someone for whom Dostoevsky was not a very important writer. I, I can go on about this at great length. Please do. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, and I, uh, then I, I realized that I sounded quite disingenuous as someone who'd written a total of two books, both of which have Dostoevsky titles. It was no good basically saying Dostoevsky basically means nothing to me. Exactly. Which is what I said in the, in the Possessed. I talk about how um, Slavists, people who study Russian literature, often divide themselves into Tolstoy and Dostoevsky camps. And I always considered myself in the Tolstoy camp. And in The Idiot, the, the narrator, Selin, has a conversation with her crush, Ivan, and who's an older math student, and Ivan loves Dostoevsky, and Selin is like, oh, you know, not really my thing. And I, I identified with both of those opinions. And then I was thinking about how Nabokov, in his lectures on Russian literature, always had only terrible things to say about Dostoevsky. And yet, if you actually look at Nabokov's works, um, I, you know, I took a graduate seminar on Nabokov, and you can see that Dostoevsky was a huge influence on him, that he read and remembered any number of things, and that clearly those books were really important to him. And so then I thought, okay, there's a group of people to which I clearly belong who experience themselves as, as people for whom Dostoevsky is not important and who are, are, are wrong about that, and why would that be? And then I thought, what could be more Dostoevsky than that? To be like, oh, I hate it, but I can't stop reading it. <laughs> There's something very perverse about it. And if I love, love, loved The Possessed. I thought it was such an amazing book because it took somebody like me who knows little about Russian literature beyond reading Anna Karenina, you know, in my 20s or whatever, and a few chunky words, but I know nothing really of the history or the, um, the importance of it in a way. And it took me not only into that, but it was via your passion for it, and also how complicated that passion was. Just tell us a bit about how that all started. Oh, yeah. You know, I originally thought of The Possessed as being a novel, um, that it was going to be a novelistic retelling of, uh, actually, Dostoevsky's novel, The Demons, which used to be translated as The Possessed, um, set in a Stanford-like uh, literature program. Um, and nobody, nobody wanted that book to exist, and nobody wanted to publish it, certainly. And I, I was talking to an editor about it, and he was like, listen, Elif, um, nobody wants to read a novel about depressed graduate students. That's not something anyone wants to do to themselves. But when I listen to you talk about Russian literature, you have such clear love for these books, and which many people haven't read because they're very long and people don't have time to read everything. And if you do a nonfiction book and can convey some of that love of Russian books to, to those people, they will can then feel that they've, you know, that they know this body of, of work that they didn't necessarily have the time. So he basically, The Possessed was a time-saving device based on love. <laughs> but now, you have written a novel. I have, yeah, finally. A sort of novel. Sort of novel, Tell yeah. us about it. Oh, well, I, I actually wrote the manuscript for this novel in uh, many years ago, in my early 20s, in 2000, 2001, uh, on a year off from graduate school. Um, graduate school being the kind of uh, experience that I wrote about in The Possessed. And I, I started this book, and I, I wrote a lot of it, and uh, it didn't really have a beginning, and it didn't have an end, and then I uh, broke my arm, and I, I didn't have health insurance. So I went back to graduate school and became very immersed in Russian literature. I wrote The Possessed, and then um, started to write nonfiction after that, and wrote nonfiction for, for many years. 
Um, then I, but I always wanted to write novels. I always wanted to write a novel. So I, I then started to write a novel, um, a completely different novel, um, that kept having flashbacks in it. And one of the persistent flashbacks was to the protagonist's time in college, college being the subject of the novel that I had abandoned in 2000. So um, to sort of find material for that flashback in the novel, I went back to this old uh, draft that I had I'd written earlier, and I found that that was somehow the prequel to the book I'd been trying to write, and I found that the book I'd been trying to write couldn't be written without doing that book first, and that, you know, that book about, that unwritten novel about college was somehow something that was standing in the way that I had to do first. So this book, just yeah. for total clarity, yeah. The Idiot, yes. is that first it's novel that first revisited. Novel. Yeah. Now does this mean that you've therefore got its sequel yeah. sort of half ready? Or? Yeah, I do. It's it's more than half. And actually, um, the sequels, I'm afraid, are, are proliferating. So there's... Um, I think there's going to be two books in between The Idiot and the sequel that I was trying to write, um, yeah, which is called The Two Lives. Not a Dostoevsky. It's not, but it's actually, it's an allusion to Chekhov. It's a phrase from The Lady with the Little Dog that Gurov felt he was living two lives, one open and known to all, the other running its course in secret. Frequently cited by so many writers so as their very, very favourite short story. The tops. Yeah, it's a brilliant short story. So in The Idiot, the novel we do actually have in front of us, mm, Yes, the novel of college life, just tell us a little bit about what happens. Well, it's, uh, it's all set in one calendar year. It's about um, uh, uh, the protagonist, it's a first-person novel. Um, the, the narrator, her name is Selin, she's a Turkish-American, um, her, her parents are Turkish, she grew up in America. Um, she wants to be a writer. She's very curious in language. She's a little bit on the socially maladapted side. The book is set in 1995, which is when my first year of college was. So she's, uh, she gets email for the first time. And she starts an email correspondence with an older student who she has a crush on. And it's sort of the course of her classes and her relationship or her friendship with one of her female classmates and the, the course of this crush, which goes sort of increasingly awry and sort of ends in the Hungarian countryside in the summer, and the book ends before, it, it, it goes from the September of one school year up to the end of August, the summer vacation. And is there a hint of, not just drawing on your own life, mm. um, but this sort of burgeoning new form, I'm sure we can find antecedents, but mm. it certainly seems to be a kind of trend at the minute for a sort of autofiction, for a blending of memoir and of fiction in a very overt way, not in a way that tries to disguise that, but actually tries to explore what that might mean. Yeah, definitely. Um, so the first, the first version that I wrote of it, of, of this book in, in 2000, was quite different, and, and autofiction wasn't the trend then that it is now. And I had tried very hard to fictionalize certain things and to sort of encode and encipher, um, and it was a, you know, the influence of the 90s was still there, the style was, was less transparent. Um, so it's really a book both of the time that it was written and a book of the time that it was re revised, which was in 2015, which was, of course, after, you know, any number of Ben Lerner, Sheila Hedy, Knausgaard, and... Um, Kenny Offill was yeah. springs to mind, and of course, yeah. Chris Krauss, who Krauss. had been going on for a long time, but was just sort of getting that kind yeah. of prominence. And even, um, yeah, it's almost like, and Renata Adler, so people who had been doing this were suddenly brought together in this new context of, of autofiction, and that definitely informed how I revised it, and 
what I felt comfortable doing and, and the freedom that I actually felt to draw from my own experience without feeling that um, therefore it wasn't a novel or that yes that it was it was a kind of hybrid thing yeah which became its own form yeah exactly well it's it's kind of that it's a hybrid form but it's also kind of that um, to me the novel has always been about a kind of it's been a formal term a stylistic term a kind of construction a kind of narration and actually the simple fact like the, the sort of epistemological or ontological fact of, of what did and did not actually happen is not totally key to what the novel is to me that's a little bit incidental so I, I realized what kind of the auto fiction trend freed me to realize is that those two things can be can be separate or they can be the same thing and that actually one is free to write a novel in the way that you know it that's how one sees a novel using things that partly happened or mostly happened or you know to whatever extent. I wonder if I could just ask you um, to finish with the, this passion for mm -hmm. Russian literature. I'm just wondering how it relates to the fact that you like your character, your Turkish American, mm -hmm. and the passion that you develop is for a literature not written in the language of your Turkish heritage, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. very far from American culture in which you've grown up. Yeah. That idea of the other, and also separate by history, mm -hmm. the idea of the other, I wonder how powerful mm -hmm. that is for someone who is um, bringing together dual heritages. Yeah, that's such a great question. I think um, my answer to that question has changed in, in the time since I wrote The Possessed. So in, in the way that The Possessed is a book about choosing Russian, over Turkish, about consciously going and choosing something other. And uh, since I, I wrote The Possessed, I actually spent time living in Turkey. And I realized increasingly that the position of Russian literature, of adapting basically a Western form to a new kind of reality, and the sort of the humor and the sadness and the um, you know problems and inspirations that that situation creates, are, you know, that, that whole situation is very resonant with the situation in Turkey of um, a, a nation that has adopted Western, a Western constitution for a, a, a people and a culture to which that kind of constitution is not, um, not, not the, the, the culture in which that kind of constitution and that form of governance evolved. Um, and that actually a lot of the, the challenges and themes in Russian literature, in fact, particularly in um, the works of Tolstoy, I think of all the Russian writers, he was the most conscious of that between uh, between East and West, between science and religion, between cosmopolitanism and, and feudalism, that all of those issues are actually key issues in Turkish national identity, which I kind of thought of as something that didn't have that much to do with myself because I didn't that it wasn't a big part of my identity. I you know I grew up in the 80s and 90s before identity politics was such a big deal. My parents, especially my mother, they really thought of themselves as cosmopolitans. They didn't talk a lot about their Turkish identity, but as identity politics has, has become more dominant and it's you know become increasingly clear that nobody really escapes from it, I realized that that, that history, including, including the embrace of cosmopolitanism as a historical phenomenon, have, have shaped me much more than I realized and that there were many more resonances between Russian literature and the problems of Turkish nationalism than I, than I recognized at the beginning. Has that in any way, sorry, I'm now tacking another question yeah. on Yeah. Has that in any way drawn you back to Turkish literature. Yeah, it has actually. Um, and I used to, you know, I used to think, why is it that Russia has this wonderful novel tradition and why don't we have that in Turkey? And I think it's for um, 
a bunch of, I mean, in a way, it, it seemed to me when I was studying both the novel form and Russian literary history that Russia was a particularly apt place for the novel. If the novel is about this kind of disjuncture between um, pre-existing literary norms and open-ended lived experience, which is what you find in Don Quixote with the knights, the romances of knight errantry and the, you know, the windmills and the detritus of, of regular life. Um, that contrast is accentuated in Russia where the forms are imported from abroad and the reality is sort of extra prosaic and mundane and, um, yeah. Uh, and I wondered why it was that Turkey, which was in a similar kind of, had a similar way of importing Western artistic norms, why there wasn't a rich novel tradition in Turkey. And what I've come up with is that uh, it, it's coming, that I, I, the last few novels of Orhan Pamuk I've gotten actually, I write in the possessed about not being overly enamored with Orhan Pamuk's works, but since the Museum of Innocence and Estrangeness in my mind, I feel like those are some of the most exciting new novels that are showing things that the form can do and that actually the reality in, in Turkey might be particularly conducive to a novel and, and I myself would like to set a novel there at some point, which I hope to get to. This is now book number. Yeah. <laughs> There's three, four, four, five, six, yeah. seven. There's a lot on your plate. Yeah. But we're so glad that you've, you've written uh, The Idiot oh, and so you. glad that you've come to talk to us about it. But, you know, go on, get back to your desk. <laughs> yeah, More exactly. books to come. Thank you so much, Elif Fatima. Thank you. And lastly, the internationally best-selling author of Ash, 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 Laurent Binet, brings us a riff on the past in his new novel, The Seventh Function of Language. In February 1980, philosopher Roland Barthes was knocked down in a Paris street by a laundry van. He'd just come from lunch with François Mitterrand, a slippery politician locked in a battle for the presidency. History tells us it was an accident, and Barthes died soon afterwards. Binet imagines a world in which this wasn't an accident at all, but an assassination. What if Bart was carrying a document of unbelievable global importance? A document explaining the seventh function of language. An idea so powerful, it gives whoever masters it the ability to convince anyone in any situation to do anything. Fittingly enough, I caught Laurent on a visit to the UK the day after the French presidential debates. Laurent Binet, thank you so much uh, for coming to visit us from Paris. You arrived very early this morning, I understand. That's right. How are you feeling? Well, I'm okay. I'm okay. I'll, I'll try to do the job. <laughs> well, we meet actually, as it happens, the day after the presidential debate in France. That's so right. Yes. You are leaving a country in a certain amount of turmoil to obviously come to a country where everything is serene with nothing going on, or rather another country in turmoil. <laughs> um, it's a funny time to be a writer, isn't it? Now in France, two weeks, uh, I, I, you know, I, I thought about how to explain to English people what happens in France, and uh, I would say it this way, like, uh, we have to choose between Thatcher and Hitler, so of course... I'll vote for Thatcher, but don't ask me to be happy about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's one of those situations where it seems that people in a lot of countries, and understanding that our listeners may have all sorts of political affiliations, um, but that people in lots of countries feel that they are presented with a truly impossible almost task at the ballot box, you know, in, in quite severe contrast to, to previous years. Is that how it feels in France for a lot of people? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, the, the, um, this is tricky because um, 
the choice, it's not an impossible choice. It is the choice is obvious, mm -hmm. but it is just blackmail, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so. We're actually here to talk about your, your new novel, The Seventh Function of Language, which I have to tell you, you are responsible for slightly traumatising me by taking me back to my youth and my studenthood because <laughs> I went to university uh, to study English language and literature in the middle of the 1980s and it was an immersion into the world of semiotics, structuralism, Roland Barthes, Jacques Derrida. Um, actually, I say traumatised, I'm simply traumatised by the idea of all that time going past, but actually I found it immensely exciting. Can you just, for people not so familiar uh, with that intellectual arena, just explain a little bit about it? Well, it was a time of uh, exciting thinking in France, you know, excite exciting thinkers, in France, uh, such as Derrida, Deleuze, Foucault, Althusser, and Roland Barthes. And uh, as Roland Barthes died in 80 in a stupid car accident, um, I used it at the beginning of a novel and a real fiction this time. I just figured uh, it was not an accident, but a murder. And uh, in a way, it was in February 80. Uh, it is the symbol of the end of uh, an era because afterward, Lacan died, um, Foucault died, and it was <coughs> the end of what we, we still call French theory that time, where the, the, the French philosophers, the French thinkers, uh, <coughs> they had um, an influence all over the world, and especially in, uh, especially in America. And so I just imagined, um, yeah, so it's, it's a kind of um, sunset novel, you know, the, yes. the, the end of this time. And also, uh, it was also a transition between, like, this time was, uh, what was funny is when uh, Bart was crashed by, 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 in a car accident, he was, uh, he just came out from a lunch with François Mitterrand. Yes, and, so, and that know, is true, isn't it? That, it is true, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how your novel opens. He's yeah, wandering yeah. across the road. He's not really, his head is full of thoughts. He's not really thinking about where he's going. And suddenly he's run over. And this all happened. Why Th that's was he true. having lunch? With François Because it was before the election, uh, the, the 81 election, w when Mitterrand won, you know, and uh, in, in, um, in, in order to prepare that election, you know, uh, the François Mitterrand wanted to, to get the, the approbation of intellectual, uh, of uh, writers and artists and people like Roland Barthes. So they were his team was organizing lunch with people like Roland Barthes and this precise day, <laughs> this day, it was just a bad coincidence, but uh, the, the, the two hours after the lunch, uh, Barthes got, got his accidents. You know. Tell us what, at that point, I mean, Barthes, how old was he when he died? Only 50, 65. 65. Um, what were his sort of keynote works? What had he contributed to? He was, he, 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 uh, he got famous... Uh, as a um, semiotician, semiotician, can we can we say that? Yes. Say um, um, w when he was uh, younger, he he showed French people how everything is meaningful. You know, every everything, every. Um, uh, the, the, the design of the chair, of the table, the, the, the your clothes, the, the, the cars, the you know, like the, the a lot about fashion, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. a lot. Yeah, 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 because it's like because clothes, it's it's really um, 
the idea is it's not only to wear something but to say something mm -hmm. uh, also you know so that was the idea of uh, his idea of semiotics you know so he he learned us how he he taught he taught us um, how to read the world really mm. you know like, like uh, reading the world as a book you know so that was really um uh, clever you know and um, and brilliant and then at the end of his life he got famous for more personal work such as uh, fragment d'un discours amoureux uh, I, i don't know the title in, in english you know like um Uh, fragments of uh, love speech, you know, uh, deconstructing um, And he wrote how S it works, you know. SZ like. is one of his... his Sorry? SZ. SZ, of course, yeah, SZ. Yeah, yeah, of course. SZ was, yeah, like it's... He, he, he uh, reinvented the way to, to, to read the world, to read text also, you know, so SZ, it's like a very clever analysis of um, Balzac uh, short story, you know. I'm impressed, I'm impressed in, in a structuralist way. Yes. You know? so, so just he was seeing what these things are. I'm very interested to, you know, you, you mentioned the idea that this is a sunset novel in a sense. Of course, many of the things that we see, we continue to see. I mean, that idea of the world as a series of signs, as a structure of signs, uh, didn't end when, no. you know, when no, those no, philosophers it, died. No, it amplified. It amplified. <laughs> And many people have pointed out, for example, that a philosopher such as Baudrillard, Um, who you describe the world as spectacle and describe global politics as spectacle. We seem to be living in that sort of world now to a very great extent. Is that part, that idea that actually these philosophers are still pretty vital to us? Yes, of course, of course. writing the book? Y yes, of course. I mean, many of them, it would be too long to, uh, um, to, to talk to all of them, uh, about all of them. But for instance, Deleuze, you know, he had that idea about what he called rhizome. Rhizome, it's like a tree, but with no roots or ends, you know, like something with just starting, uh, with not real starting point, you know, like, uh, and it's, it's like internet, you know, internet, it's, there is no base of internet, you know, internet is like a web, you know, and so it was, Deleuze thought about something uh, close to what is internet now. So they are all very actual, Um, I don't know well, Foucault um, you know I mean Foucault about uh, like the power they're all about power and power punishing and jails and uh, mm. what and sexuality yeah they, they are very of course I mean they, they, they were they were very controversial but uh, always um, giving ideas you know to discuss you know you, do, you, do, you don't have to uh, in my opinion you don't have to agree with them but it it makes you always uh, more intelligent you know like cleverer it gi it gives you ideas you know like yes. so it's very stimulating it's very stimulating yeah even I even even for arguing with them you know um, i do remember in the i suppose 90s um derrida was so important here that on uh, one April Fool's Day Poisson d'Avril yeah. you know when you play jokes on one another one of the newspapers did a spoof a joke cover of the celebrity magazine Hello uh, which I think you have in France it's Ola in, yeah, in Spanish yeah, yeah, yeah. Hello uh, with Derrida on the cover and it was <laughs> Derrida invites you around his to see around his lovely home and it's <laughs> so impossible to think of that kind of thing happening now isn't it <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like, it's just so much a part of because a kind 
uh, when do you think it was in the 90s it was definitely the sort of early 90s I would oh so out. late so late because yeah. it sounds very 70s you know but well they were they were rock stars actually exactly you know, they, they, exactly yeah, yeah. Um, so it was fun to write about you obviously as you did in your first book Ash 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 just took the idea and sort of ran with it. So suddenly we have Russians involved, we have a plot, we have all sorts of, you'd almost say, a kind of, uh, like Umberto Eco or something, a sort of jeu d'esprit, imagining all these conspiracies and behind the world, this sort of occult life uh, behind the everyday world. How much fun was it to write? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, it was just after 10 years uh, chasing the historical truth, you know, like a neurotic, I think I just wanted... uh, to move, you know, (laughs) 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 to move on and to, to, uh, so I just, um, I wanted to to do something much more playful, you know, and, uh, but still playful with um, the the questions uh, which were, which I was interested by, like uh, the the relation, relationship between history and fiction, you know, it's still the same topic, but on a different angle. And now this was like, yeah, the, the the idea was uh, uh, to have fun with with the real, you know. So like that guy, he's got, he 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 died in a car accident. But let's let's imagine it's a murder, you know. Or that guy, that guy, he didn't die at that time, but I will kill him, you know. And so yeah. it was very yeah, very fun and very uh, relieving, uh, uh, like, like a relief, you know, like to, to just to not to be chained by, by, uh, by real, you know? Yeah. So yes. it was, yeah, it was very exciting, exciting. And, uh, yeah, I, I had a lot of fun. Well, I had a lot of fun reading it. I really enjoyed this book. Thank you so much for coming all the way from Paris to, to talk you. to us. <laughs> thank you very much, Lauren. Thank Bonnet. you. Thank you. And that concludes the first half of our Summer Read special. We hope you found something in there to tuck in your suitcase. And thank you to our guests this month, Elif Batuman, Laurent Binet and Brian Van Riet. Don't miss that second half later in July. And in the meantime, if you have reading recommendations for your own that we shouldn't miss, you can tweet them at us at Vintage Books on Twitter. And if you enjoy the Vintage podcast, why not rate and review us on whatever platform you listen to podcasts on. Until next time.